Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of Still Unbelievable. I'm your host this week, Andrew Knight, and with me is David Johnson and Natalie Collins. You may remember Natalie from the uh, January 4th episode of, Still, of uh, Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. She was in conversation uh, with Bill Moore, and the conversation was over uh, Me Too and the church and whether egalitarianism or complementarianism should govern relationships between men and women uh, in the Christian church. I think today, as we uh, get into this episode, you can probably think of this episode as egalitarianism, the idea that I think Natalie defends, uh, versus humanism. So we had egalitarianism versus complementarianism in the unbelievable episode, and today you'll hear a little bit more of a skeptical view uh, on egalitarianism. So let me first say, uh, hello, David. Hey, how you doing? All right. And Natalie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So why don't you start, if you don't mind and you're ready, by telling us a little bit about who Natalie is. Especially who Natalie is as a Christian. Yes. Uh, Yes, so I suppose... um, I grew up in a conservative Christian home in the UK, um, which is quite a different thing than saying you grew up in a conservative Christian home in the US, I think. Um, Yeah. It would probably still be, it wouldn't be as conservative as the US, but um, yeah, I grew up in a, um, with Christian parents, always kind of thought uh, Christianity was was true and all that kind of stuff. Um, And... uh, at 17, met my now ex-husband, um, and he was uh, very damaging to me. He was very abusive. I was with him until I was 21. Um, have two children from that relationship. I left him when he um, assaulted me, and my son was—I was pregnant, and my son was born premature. Um, and so we then ended up living in hospitals for about um, five months. My toddler daughter, who was a toddler, and my um, son, who was premature. And um, for me, it was in that place when I was living in a hospital that I came to a position of what I would describe as a Christian faith that was really all mine. And it was in that place of like losing everything that I discovered. I I discovered this kind of God that I'd heard about my whole life, but hadn't really experienced for myself. Um, And so it was from from that situation of, of deep suffering and trauma that I came to the position that I did about the idea of maintaining my Christian faith Um, then I um, went on a journey of discovery around issues around male violence and trying to make sense of why my ex husband had behaved like that and what was going on and that's where I discovered feminism and um, I often describe it as Jesus saved my life and feminism made sense of my life and so it was through a feminist analysis of male violence that I was able to start reconstructing my life and critiquing and challenging the culture which in lots of ways had contributed to the views that I had which made me quite vulnerable to somebody abusive so purity culture this idea that you shouldn't have sex before marriage really meant that I wasn't in a good position to make good choices um, in relationships stuff around forgiveness around submission around the roles of women all meant that when I met this person who was very dangerous I didn't have any of the skills that I would have needed to be to protect myself from him 
Um, so I left when I was 21. I'm now 34. And my children are 15 and 13 and very awesome. And um, so, for, so for the last decade, I've worked addressing male violence across the UK and sometimes internationally. I wrote a program to equip practitioners, for youth and children's practitioners, to work on issues of abuse and exploitation. That's called the Day Program. Um, I've written a a program for women who've been subjected to abuse called the Own My Life course that I'm piloting across the UK and I do lots of work so I work in Christian culture but I also work outside of Christian culture so the youth program the program for women isn't written as a kind of Christian resource it's just written to help people recover I've also worked with perpetrators of domestic violence and um, I've worked on issues around female genital mutilation, around um, pornography, lots of different stuff. And so um, uh, within the church, particularly um, in the UK, I'm one of the co-founders of the Christian Feminist Network in the UK. And I also um, set up this thing called Project 328, which comes from Galatians 328, about there being neither male nor female, we're one in Christ. And uh, we count the number of men and women on the national Christian platform. And we've seen an increase from 25% women on the national Christian platform to 39% women just by releasing stats every year and uh, we set up a database of women who can speak at Christian events uh, speaker328.info um, so that events have got more women to kind of choose from when they actually you know when they're like oh we, we asked a woman but she couldn't make it we're like well here's another few hundred you can ask so in a in a very like I think I hope that was short enough but that's a basic overview of um, of me so I'm you know still a very committed to my faith but I guess I've done quite a lot of deconstructing that and, and I think at the minute we're seeing a lot of people deconstructing their faith and how toxic it has been particularly around um, gender and and then kind of rejecting it whereas for me it wasn't a case of deconstructing and then rejecting it but deconstructing it and then rebuilding it with um, kind of in light of what I, my experience of God I suppose. So that was, well, that that was short Go ahead Dave I was going to say that was such a good summary. I was just going through my notes and my list of questions, thinking, "Okay, you got that one, got that one, yep, no, got that one." That one. It's, it's almost as if you had uh, seen our notes, and I know that you have not. That's <laughs> so. the power of prayer, Dave. I suspect that's what she's going to tell us. The power of prayer. I'm not. So, I'm not tell you anything. No. So, so Natalie, first, let me say, I I have worked uh, a women's crisis hotline in the past. Uh, I still work a crisis hotline today uh, at Recovering from Religion. And while I hate to, I, I can't really use the word congratulations, but another word doesn't come readily to mind, uh, except to say that I'm very glad that you survived domestic violence and that you survived it intact with your children. Yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh in the UK 30% of women will be subjected to abuse by a partner and I think the stats mm -hmm. are about the same in the US um, and so the re you know the rea reality is that for so many women women either are killed by their partner are um, attempt suicide or, or succeed at, um, at dying as a result of suicide um, lose their children their children end up um, given um, custody to the, the perpetrator all sorts of terrible things and so um, yeah. I'm, you know, it, it is a very, very horrifying reality that a lot of people who are outside of that just have no idea. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm very glad to be in a place. I got remarried, um, so I've been married to my now husband for eleven years. I call him the good one. <laughs> 
um, he's uh, he's he's full time at home with the kids, and um, he supports all my my work. He does all the admin for uh, my consultancy, so all that I work is um, in a freelance capacity. So he does all that for me. So, um, yeah, so, you, so. You, you mentioned the stats. Uh, are those uh, stats the same in religion as outside of religion? Is it is it the same? better, worse, uh, 30% yeah. of abuse. How does that look in, inside the church? Yeah, so there was a piece of research done in the UK last year called In Churches 2, and they found that the stats, I think they, I think it suggests that the church is slightly lower according to this research, but I think that's because the research um, hasn't um, maybe represented the situation fully, just because it, I think it's very difficult to get really robust statistics. So the, from all the research that there is, and there isn't a lot of it, the, the abuse of women within the church and men's, men being abusive to women in the church is at the same rate as as wider culture the difference is that somebody who is who is a person of faith will stay with an abuser for, for about seven years longer often it's a they will stay a lot longer than somebody who is not a person of faith so it doesn't it's not like that perpetration is a result of faith although it can be part of the problem is, isn't it possible that the that the abused will not recognize that they're being abused uh, right away yeah, well, that's the case for everybody. Nobody identifies that they're being abused. It's one of the massive issues with the issue that's of right. abuse is that, that nobody self-identifies that they're being subjected to abuse because they think, oh, no, I'm not one of those sort of people and he's not one of those sort of those sort of men and it's just a difficult relationship and so the problem in the church particularly that's different to wider culture is that the church has a particularly focus on um, maintaining sustaining and, and furthering relationships particularly marriage and so whereas if the relationship was bad outside of Christian culture um, a couple might not be, wouldn't necessarily have people around them going oh no you should stay together within the church because this is identified the majority of the time a abuse is identified as a relationship issue and abuse is not a relationship issue i never use the term abusive relationship it's an abusive person who's in a relationship that's exactly right yeah and yes. so um so the issue is within the church because of the way that marriage particularly is I, I idolized i would say the nuclear family as well is idolized um it does cause particular issues in terms of the sort of advice people get but but it's the say outside of the church it's not you know there's lots of people who've never been in christian culture who would say oh you know my mother said you've made your bed now you have to lie in it or you mm -hmm. know they're kicked their father so i think you know kind of uh, cultural, some of the cultural messages outside of Christian culture that really affected me at the time in 2003 when I had my daughter, um, there was a lot of denigration of single mothers and teenage mothers in the in the news, news at that time. Um, I don't know whether that was the case in the US, but it meant that I felt very much like I can't leave my partner because then I'll be one of those scummy single mothers. Um, and there isn't such a thing as those, but I think it really motivated me. So my, my motivation to stay with my ex-husband wasn't only about faith, it was about wider cultural narrative as well. It is a little hard sure. to talk about the wider culture, cultural narrative, though, because the culture has been so inundated with the Christian narrative for so long. Uh, and so even people who are not, quote unquote, Christians are still a part of the culture that has picked up a lot of its ideals of what is right and wrong and uh, various mores from the church. Yeah, I think so. I think um, that's absolutely the case. I mean, the whole thing around the denigration of single mothers is because of this um, judgment on kind of children out of wedlock and, you know, all the kind of really, you know, that actually is very sort of Victorian attitudes, um, which obviously are very kind of Christian informed. So, yeah, I think some of that does 
it does have its heritage within Christian values as well. So, as a, I noticed that your work title is uh, gender justice specialist. Is that is that correct? correct. I made it up. <laughs> uh, as as all good titles should be. <laughs> um, look, I, I make up all kinds of titles uh, for myself. Sometimes they're ones that I can't repeat on air. I can repeat mine. I am the hegemon, and it does not matter that the world has not recognized that yet. <laughs> so. I guess what got you to the uh, so we know your backstory and I really and I really am happy that we're able to talk about it and, and I'm glad that you survived. What led you into the idea of of the title of gender justice specialist and does it extend from uh, from women exclusively? I, I realize you'd probably include men. Does it also include non-binary genders or uh, or relationships that include two men or two women, et cetera? Uh, because it seems to me that this this domestic violence issue spans relationships of all kinds. And I'm wondering what you think uh, as a Christian woman about uh, relationships that are non-traditional and as a gender justice uh, specialist, as, as the person that you are. Yeah. Do you accept that those are relationships, uh, you know, that, would you support those relationships? Would you uh, encourage the same sorts of uh, intervention for those kinds of relationships? How do you feel about non-traditional relationships? Yeah, so I would have a, my theology would be one which wouldn't be uh, exclusive of people in same-sex relationships. Mm. I, some, I, a lot of my friends would be people who are um, gay or lesbian Christians. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a position which is, um, I wouldn't hold a cons conservative position around sexuality. Um, I also have friends who would kind of sit within the same sex attracted movement who would be very, find that really problematic. So I wouldn't, I, it's not like I'm like, right, well, I'm not going to be friends with anyone unless they have a, you know, liberal position on sexuality at all. Right. But, right. Um, in but you're okay with side B homosexual yeah. relationship Fair yeah. Enough. yeah yeah so i think in terms of um and and i th i think yeah like that actually the reality is that anybody can be abusive that is that the reality is that yeah human human nature people can make really bad choices in their relationships statistically in the uk 92 percent of those who are com who are um uh, tried for domestic abuse related crime are males so so we're talking about a very very significant proportion of um violence is perpetrated by men and um, the majority of men who are who are subjected to abuse either as children or as adults will be abused by other men so men are generally for the mass majority of the time the perpetrators of violence and so that's why we have to have a gendered analysis of violence and abuse we can't just kind of say oh well anybody can be abusive because although yes that's true if we look at who is abusive and if we if we look at violence more broadly if we start looking at terrorism if we start looking at who perpetrates war who takes countries to war we discover very quickly sure. that there is something specific about masculinity and men that is a concern so so i would say there is a need to have a gendered analysis and you know we can talk about why men are more likely to be violent than women um if you want but um but yeah absolutely um people in same-sex relationships there is the potential for for abuse and within the uk we have um a service called gallup who is the um the national service around lgbt violence and that both looks 
that they both support around hate crime as well as um, domestic abuse. Um, so absolutely, I would want to validate that it can um, happen within same-sex relationships. And also that the, there are particular elements of abuse within same-sex relationships that are different. Um, so... Um, threatening to out somebody as part of the abusive behaviour, um, if somebody is trans, um, denying them access to hormones, or yep. outing them as trans in places that they haven't yet come out. Um, you, you know, the, the power dynamics in same-sex relationships can be quite much, there can be complexities that you wouldn't necessarily see in heterosexual relationships, so you could often, you would often say the power imbalance within a relationship where there is an older man and a younger woman, particularly, you know, the bigger the age gap, you could, you could could say actually there's a power imbalance there whereas actually if you've got a, a same-sex couple of men and the man there's an older man who's only just come out and there's a younger man who's been out for a long time actually the dynamics and power balances are quite different so it's really important to recognize that within same-sex relationships there are particularly unique factors and, and i think that um it's really important that people within lgbt community are the ones leading on what that conversation looks like and what people need from within that community i've i've just got i've got a book coming out in march about um for christians about domestic abuse and i make it very clear that i'm speaking about um per male perpetrators in, in heterosexual relationships because i don't feel i'm the best person to write that book that needs to be written for same-sex relations for lgbt right. people so yeah so maybe if i can summarize that i think I think what I would say is, uh, while it is the case that uh, much much of the domestic violence is perpetrated by men, mm. any one of any gender can be abused. Abuse yeah. is not gender specific, whereas there is a higher propensity among men to commit abuse. And in yeah. fact, the statistics here in the United States suggest that a great many of the male abusers who go on to abuse were themselves, of course, abused in some way uh, uh, in childhood. And I would, um, would want to. Do you want me to add my uh, criticism of that sort of stuff now? Do you want me to wait? Well, you certainly. You cer well, hmm. tell you what. So there will let's be a whole section. The second half. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's save it for the second half because. Let, let me come, just let make sure we come back to that because I would do that that framing that abusers were abused themselves but we can talk about that later sure well in fact if 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 you want to just make sure you get uh, put a put a stake in the ground there go go ahead and give your initial I've got a note on that. the screen but yeah put, by all means go ahead and uh, so i think we have to be really careful because actually the vast majority of those who abuse statistically are female but the vast majority of those who abuse are male and so there's clearly some differential happening somewhere what we see so that lundy bancroft who is um has worked with thousands of perpetrators he says about 50 percent of the men that he's worked with have witnessed a male role model being abusive to a female when they were growing up that we do not see higher rates of male perpetrators when they've seen a female be abusive to a male um so this is not about trauma it is about role modeling how you see men behave towards women um and also that means that 50 percent abuser of abusers have not seen abuse growing up and so it's really important because otherwise there is this real risk that we collude with the idea that abusers don't have a choice that they're not making deliberate choices to do what they do that they just can't help themselves and actually that's just well, not the case uh, well okay so you yeah. and i have read very different statistics mm -hmm. and we will hold that uh for the second half because yeah. what you're suggesting is that there is no such thing as compulsion in human nature 
Yes. And I, that is that is not the case. So we have brain structures. Yeah, we're, we're going to have a good time over yeah. this because I can actually point to the part of the brain that is responsible for empathetic uh, response. So, so we I, will talk about that. I think I think Natalie, maybe a little bit of your Christian is coming out there, and that's that's great because I wanted to uh, kind of <laughs> lean into a little bit of your uh, theology there. You had mentioned that your theology uh, allowed for uh, egalitarianism among uh, same sex and different uh, relationships. Uh, as well, not not just a male female issue. Yeah. That said, maybe you can tell us a little bit more uh, from there. So I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I, I just don't I don't want to assume it. Would you consider yourself a liberal Christian? No, I don't consider myself to be a liberal at all. I would call myself a radical rather than a liberal. I'm not. I think um, I'm, I I think liberalism is a very problematic thing um that fundamentally like philosophically if we look at where liberalism starts it starts off with um i it, it's it's fundamentally quite selfish i will treat you well because i want you to treat me well which it might mean you treat other people well but you're doing it as a result of self-interest um so i would say that i'm not I, i'm not i'm not a fan of liberalism um i would see myself as a as a radical but i wouldn't see myself as a conservative so yeah okay well i, I lost that bet um <laughs> so so that's interesting though so you don't see yourself as a liberal but also not a conservative is is a word like funda so fundamentalism probably is not your thing too. describe a little bit more then of where you are on the spectrum so i would say um what within kind of christianity specifically or about my politics more generally christianity specifically okay because i would say you know like liberalism comes in with kind of a lot of stuff around um within more politically i wouldn't consider myself to be a political liberal either so i think that i would see those things as connected to each other um i think um i'm not i don't fundamentally think that um it's all about me and my personal kind of how i personally think i need to live i would i would probably hold to a much more marxist kind of view i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily go all the way to marxism but we definitely see that um it's about us living in community and liberalism is very much kind of in, uh, connected with individualism and you know that kind of has now very much been connected with consumerism and so i would be saying that actually I would want to locate myself as part of a community of people and that the impact, what I do has an impact on other people and what other people has an impact on me. And so it's not just about me and my personal rights and what I personally want to do. And um, okay. there is a broader understanding that we need to look at how, how do what I do affect other people. So maybe, maybe we can identify uh, better how you, how you view the Bible, how you approach scripture. Uh, so would you would you consider yourself a biblical literalist? Um, no. I'm guessing not. Okay. So how do you how do you um, approach scripture then? Is it the word of God? Is it um, the the word of humans about God? Uh, because this is one of the ways that that classically d distinguishes a, a religious conservative from a religious liberal. This is one of the ways that people talk about it. So tell us tell us about your approach to the Bible. So where would my, how would I approach the Bible? So um, I, um, 
So within, so I'm currently doing a master's in theology, and um, some people will be familiar with the like Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is a fancy way of talking about how we how we come to the um, what sources that it would describe it as what sources do we use in coming to theological conclusions. I would object to the use of the word sources because I would call them filters, because um, I would say that the source of theology is God, and the filters through which we do theology are, um, and within the Wesleyan quadrilateral, it's scripture tradition reason and experience and you could also add in church and community so those are the kind of five ways that when we come to theological conclusions we where everybody uses all five of those filters whether they want to believe it or not we all will look at what scripture says but um, our tradition and, and what we are kind of what we've inherited will be part of it um reason um some more than others use reason experience what how we our experience of the world and of god and of our community and also the community in which we find ourselves um i would say that the problem with that that um is that for me my my faith is fundamentally founded on direct revelation so my experience of god and of god directly speaking to me supersedes all of those things and so i would say that i would want to have like six ways of coming to theological conclusions there's direct revelation when god kind of makes things clear um you've got scripture tradition reason experience and church and community and those things come together i would say that the kind of fundamentalists pretend that that they only use scripture Mm -hmm. (laughs) then you kind of conservatives who would accept they use all of them but would say scripture is the priority um liberals would probably place experience um and scripture lower down but as important what i would say is direct revelation has to be the priority and that 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 i would then read scripture through direct revelation and through my experience and i would i would say that i i see scripture as absolutely formative in my faith but where my experience of god is counter to what I find in scripture I would say that my ex- the direct revelation of what I have experienced of God directly would supersede what scripture says that um, is for- exactly what I was about to ask that is the question yeah. I was trying to form yeah. I don't <laughs> I wouldn't say necessarily supersedes but what I would say is at that point I'd be looking at a scriptural passage and going okay well I need to find a way to make sense of this and actually a lot of it for me is about holding intention so for instance like one of the worst bits of scripture is the test of an unfaithful wife right yes it's awful horrific i can't remember which book it's in it's it's x-rated we won't even read it here yeah so it's just horrid and so like i look at that passage and i can find nothing to redeem it like i like i've only ever heard one person ever preach on it and this man tried to be like oh well the way we can look at this is that jesus took that cup of that was meant to be about our potential unfaithfulness or whatever but like generally i would say there's nothing i can do to make sense of that passage to redeem that passage and so actually i just sit in the ten of knowing that passage exists I can't make sense of it and I just have to accept that there's things that remain a mystery at this until the other end of the other the other side of eternity so is it is it a mystery though or do you do you actually kind of throw it under the bus you know I just like I have I suppose the the way I suppose if I was going to use reason with that passage which for people who are unfamiliar with it because anybody who doesn't know it and they're re- listening to this part this, this podcast because they're because they're anti-faith it's going to turn them even more anti-faith so that passage is one in which um, if a man suspects his wife of being unfaithful he takes her to the priest the priest does this kind of like weird ceremony and if she becomes infertile she was clearly unfaithful yeah, the if ceremony she, involves him giving him giving her poison yeah. essentially 
Exactly. If she doesn't, then she's she's fine. Um, but night, whether she is or isn't, the man is not responsible because the woman shouldn't have caused him to think that she was unfaithful. Um, and the only thing that I've been able to do to kind of make any sense of that is to think that at that time, if we contextualise that passage, we would have to understand that if a man believed his wife to be unfaithful in that time period, he could have just had her killed. And so this is a this is a protective factor around that. That's the only thing. So I suppose that's what I would that as an example of how I would approach it. Go. There, there must be that there, there may be some way to contextualise this and make for it to make sense for that time period. But in this time period, right now, I literally have nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you don't you don't David, buy it. How do you um, how do you address the idea of contextualising? Uh, of contextualizing verses in the Bible, I think you have to be consistent. So if um, if you're, I mean, the, con the context has to be consistency in part. So if you're going to throw one part under the bus because it's awful, then I think you've got to throw all of the awful stuff under the bus, and then you've gotten rid of uh, two thirds of your Bible. So I'm not saying I would throw it under the bus as much as I would say that it had a contextual value in that time. And if we were to look at what the contextual value of it, say the protection of women who are accused of adultery, we could we could bring that truth into the into a contemporary conversation. So yeah, but you, you don't you don't really buy that, do you? I mean, you don't you don't really buy that God, you know, for for His people and the laws that He's making. The best He could do is say, give if you're jealous, give your have the priest give your wife poison. You don't you don't actually buy that, do you? I mean, I think I guess what I would say is that I I I think it's very difficult for us to work out what it means to contextualize things. How how do we know what it was to be in that time period and what it was to be a woman in that time period meant you had no rights whatsoever. You had nothing. And so actually I, yeah, like I, I don't know. I, I would like to say I agree with you. Yes, absolutely. If we were to go back in time, there would of course be a better way to solve this. But like, I mean, I don't, I just don't think that I would want to, I don't think I have, the capacity to do that i'm like uh, you know I, I just as a human being in 2019 i'm not really in a position to say right let's go back five thousand years and i'm in a position to make judgments on what is and isn't but, appropriate. But you, I mean, are, you are in a position to make judgments on what you think is uh, right and wrong not yeah. just for not just for our time but for all time and so yeah. can, could you would you at least agree that 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 passage that you brought up that situation is sounds more like humans trying to come up with a solution rather than God trying to come up with a solution. Yeah, like I like I absolutely it could definitely be that. I think that I would just like I now there are a lot so if you look at for instance the practice of female genital mutilation is an absolutely horrific practice. Well, I'm um, I'm no fan of male genital uh, mutilation no. either. <laughs> so not comparable as as practices the the practice of female genital mutilation involves cutting off the inner and outer labia of little girls and sewing them up so they can't even walk properly never mind ever birth a baby properly it means cutting off the clitoris for instance so they're yes. very different in terms of you know it's more like castration for men than it is like circumcision well hold, hold on hold on um Let's be, let's be let's be very clear with the listeners that uh, there were times when circumcision of young boys 
was actually done by males, not with not with cutting tools, but with their mouths. And we have a long history of complications from male genital mutilation uh, before we got into sterilizing instruments and practicing male genital mutilation, um, you know, as a as a an appeasement to religious tradition. Yes, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm not advocating or justifying male circumcision. But in this current context of our like our current like place in history, um, when we talk about female genital mutilation, we're talking about something that is much much different. Well, to, well no, we're not. No, we're not yeah. because uh, the places where we practice female genital mutilation are the same places where we practice male genital mutilation, and it's not primarily the Western world. And so when you go and abuse a child, when you go and as an adult take control of their genitals without their permission, you're abusing that child whether he or she is male or female. Now, whether that has uh, more significant impact physically uh, on, on a young girl, we can argue that. Yeah, well, but that- I'm not willing to leave uh, a place where the listeners think, oh, well, we can support male genital mutilation, but we can't support female genital mutilation. Okay, but yeah, fair enough. I think so. I mean, so my point in relation to bringing up the issue of female genital mutilation is that as a white British woman, it would be very easy for me to look at the communities that practice female genital mutilation and go, aren't they barbaric? Aren't they awful? Um, but actually, understanding the context that um, that actually an, only a girl will be married in a culture where the only value you have is marriage, and understanding that context and seeking to to look at why you know that actually kind of rights of rights of passage into adulthood and all that stuff and and so what i'm saying is that it's we already hopefully all of us would agree that it's very problematic to without understanding of a cultural context even contemporary cultural context to start making pronouncements on whether or, or judgments without taking an understanding the context would be problematic um, and so when we then take six thousand years into consideration we do like i just don't think that it's as simple as going well, you know, I could come up with a better plan if I was back then. I just <laughs> well, I may not could come up with a better plan, although I'm pretty sure I could. But we're not talking about whether humans could come up with a better plan. We're talking about the law of God. Yeah, I mean, and, I, yeah, and th- I this once again this speaks to the question of how you view the Bible. If you don't view the Bible as the word of God, and you do view it as just kind of men trying to figure out God the best way they can. I could I could buy your explanations very well, and so I'm trying to I'm trying to find a place where I can, uh, in fact, buy your explanations. But if you're also hanging on to oh no, this is the word of God, and this is God acting this out, then we have a different conversation, because uh, yeah, God should be able to come up with a better answer, and if He can't, that's reason enough to to not really care about His answers. If the best answer you can come up with with is, yes, poison your wife if you're jealous, and if she dies, she must be guilty, and if she doesn't die, then she's okay, then that's that doesn't sound like a God that I would follow. Yeah, I, I can totally agree. I think that my experience of the Christian God, because my experience of God 
is of the Christian God and of Jesus has been one that does not represent what I read in those those sorts of passages in the Bible. But because my experience is of the Christian God, I also hold on to the Bible because that's where we discover the Christian God. Um, and so for me personally, it's about finding a way to um make as much peace as i can with the things that i i can't explain um and not trying too hard to hold on to those things at the end of the day if i like dinosaurs right if i get to heaven and i just want to be like god why are there dinosaurs similarly like why did that why does that law exist and hopefully like there will be you know some it will make it clear but at the end of the day like i I don't I wouldn't say that that should be a practice we have now and I would work to ensure that women are not being blamed by men for their jealousy because my experience of God is that is what God wants even if the Bible doesn't say that in that particular passage when perhaps there are other parts of the passage like for instance 1 Corinthians 13 about love being patient and kind and stuff that actually that would supersede my um that that passage that's really problematic do you leave room that some parts of the bible might be wrong so one of the people that i regularly um talk to leaves leaves room for the possibility that the bible could yeah. be wrong in okay. some places yeah and i think you know we have to look at the fact that even before you like actually look at the original text like the, we, there's so many things that, that that's happened to that bible before it gets to us in the language we read it and there's so many things we can't explain it was never meant to be like a rule book that we were like oh right this is exactly the same as it was you know six thousand years ago whatever happened then you know lots of it is you know so like job is probably not really didn't really happen you know hosea probably didn't really happen these are you know kind of uh parables or you know that there's lots of bits of it that i think we have to accept you know there's there's not necessarily any proof that the exodus actually happened you know like okay. these 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 things there's as much proof that the exodus happened as it didn't happen you know so for me like it's it's the the my the word of god primarily for me means jesus and then after that it means looking at what scripture can tell me but holding intention the fact that some of this stuff could either be entirely wrong it could be um mis miscommunicated it could have been mistranslated you know there's all sorts of things that could have happened have, have happened to it you know you've only got to look at the apostle junior he was re remade into a man for like <laughs> a really long time and called Ju julius um because they couldn't accept that a woman could be an apostle so you know we know that the and that only changed in 2011 when the the scholarship argued and argued that actually she was a woman so yeah, there's lots of things that are probably wrong in the Bible that I read. So let, let me let me just go. It maybe you think that some of my reading of the Bible is stuff that uh, you know where we just got it wrong in translation. So I'm curious, um, Andrew. Before I, before I jump into my case, mm. uh, is there anything that you wanted to uh, add to that? Um, because the, the next phase of this is I'm, I'm going to look at the Bible. I'm going to do what uh, your interlocutor uh, didn't do on uh, the Unbelievable show. And, oh. you know, talk about um, where, yes, I, uh, yeah. you know, what actually the Bible says and how, how I think that's read. And, and maybe give you a chance to explain how you find egalitarian despite that. So before we get into that, Andrew, did you, did you have anything you wanted to? Well. While, while we're bridging the gap, I will ask this question. Um, Natalie, I don't, I don't know if you listened uh, to the 
August 25th episode of Unbelievable, uh, August 2518, David and I were in conversation with uh, Justin Brierley and Randall Rouse. Okay. And uh, I asked the question of Justin and Randall at that time, uh, whether it was uh, whether it was reasonable to say that violence against women was wrong simply because you're violating a woman's bodily autonomy. Now, I got a bunch of chatter back about uh, objective morality and uh, needing God to found the reason it's wrong and yada, yada, yada. But do you think we ought to be able to look across a table at each other and say, violence against each other is wrong simply because we are hurting each other? Do you think you need more uh, substantiation than just that? Well, no, because I would say that if somebody's an atheist, like, it's still wrong for them to commit violence against another person, which the argument that, like, if we don't have God, God, you know, in the mix, then we can't say something's wrong. That means that nobody can actually, like, be morally can make moral decisions unless they're a Christian, and that's, like, a massively... Mm massively problematic thing to say so no i would say absolutely like male violence well anybody any violence or abuse is wrong because it destroys another human being regardless of whether you believe that there is another um you know and any more than that right we, we both are Maybe. very happy to hear you say that <laughs> let me let me say for the record here, here's something that i didn't get to say that you and i may agree on i uh, we'll see uh, i didn't get to say this on august 25th but there was a question about how i ground that particular epic so let me say it here for our listeners uh, we have brain structures that cause empathy in us we share those structures, and uh, we can even recognize in the abstract uh, when we hurt each other, not because we're the ones perpetrating violence, but because we recognize things like facial expression, right? Yeah. And, and it seems to me that I can justify ethically not harming you, not, not that I'm contemplating harming you, just uh, <laughs> purely <laughs> theoretically, right? Uh, but, <laughs> right. Uh, we would not harm each other because we can recognize what harm is based on the physical characteristics of our brains. We do have empathetic and, and sympathetic response. Yeah. And it seems to me uh, that I need nothing more than a recognition through that sort of built-in hardware that we all have. Mm -hmm. uh, when I harm someone, I need nothing more than that hardware to justify not harming someone. Yeah, so I guess yeah, you're talking about stuff like the mirror neurons and um, that's right, and exactly. That, um, that well, we, yeah, yeah, and and there's a center of the brain. I'll uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more uh, in a minute. But there's a center of the brain, uh, not just not just mirror neurons. There's okay. actually a center of the brain that recognizes when we are being overly egotistical and corrects for that behavior. Now, those are relatively recent experiments, but we know that it does exist. And so it's not just mirror neurons that we can sort of, uh, you know, some people can sort of hand wave it away, right? But there is actually a, a structure inside the brain that is responsible for identifying overly egocentric response and correcting when we are overly egocentric. 
ha, ha, yeah so i would say i agree on that point the problem is not um in that like you know kind of in the general but it's in the um specific isn't it so um for instance um richard dawkins has argued some stuff about aborting children with down syndrome um and that you could you know that you could what what somebody who was christian might argue is the reason and the reason they would argue differently to richard dawkins is they would say that there is you know that there is inherent value in human beings that it's not just it's not the ones who are able to rationalize that there is inherent value in a human being and that's somebody who doesn't believe in like a soul or you know doesn't believe that we're any different than animals apart from our rational capacity what you end up with is saying well if someone doesn't have a rational capacity to be a human being anymore and so actually absolutely on a on a general perspective you could say our ability to believe in in treating other people well because they're a human being is absolutely correct when you then get into the specifics of um you know kind of ethics around certain things whatever they are um it becomes much more complex in who is deserving of that if that makes sense yeah i i for my part i think that the discussion around down syndrome uh, misses the point i think that um down syndrome may be a a good point for some people depending on how you understand down syndrome but i think what people are really saying people like peter singer or um even dawkins here is if a person if you know that a person is going to be born in a horribly disfigured manner that is also horribly painful that will cause a uh short brutish life of misery abject misery and if this is something that you know from the beginning then then are you are you doing actually a good thing by carrying that birth to term and saying ah but he's human made in god's image you see that's that's the real rub it's it's the the christian would maybe make that decision on a at a theological level and the non-christian would make it at a let's say more human level and I think I think that's where the the real discussion is. So I think that we can get tangled up over whether Down syndrome is that thing or not. Yeah. Well, I suppose it was because he actually said something about Down syndrome, which right. is why I mentioned it. Right. Not, well, not and I, I think I think it was a bad example. But I'm I'm just trying to get at the being philosophically generous to get at the heart of where what I think the, this argument really is about. Yeah, I th- and I think, you know, I mean, I don't really want to get into a conversation about abortion. I don't even know I brought it I don't either. <laughs> oh, come on. The listeners, look, oh, the no, listeners no. want it, guys. No, uh, look, I, I'm not prepared. Know, this is not in my notes. Right. <laughs> I, did, I did no study, no research. I just wanted to correct that one thing. But yeah, but I, think, no. I, suppose, I suppose what I'm saying is that... Um, that absolutely. So I would say in terms of thinking about empathy and the, the mistreatment of another person. Um, so uh, fundamentally, the reason somebody abuses another person is because they can and because they benefit from it. So we rarely talk about the benefits of being abusive. But if I'm an abusive to my partner, um, what I get is I get somebody who serves my needs, who does what I want. I get sex on demand. I never have to take responsibility for anything. I get um, I get to have the status of being a, a husband or father or whatever without actually having to fulfill any of the responsibilities of that um and so the reason why somebody who is abusive to a partner 
partner does that is because they benefit from it and um and so yes absolutely we have these mirror neurons and we have empathy but actually that empathy reduces when i suddenly realize so so somebody who's abusive isn't generally psychopathic the vast majority of abusers are not psychopathic um sorry um but actually what they Um, are uh, psychopathy yeah, they're is not, not binary. Well, psychopathy is not binary. No, psychopathy is a is a range, and in fact, we have a we have a scale that is quite well understood. There's a psychological test for evaluating psychopathy on a scale of uh, something like one to forty. And yeah. so, when you say the vast majority of abusers are not psychopathic, that does not actually uh, match well with how a clinician would observe psychopathy because psychopathy is a range. And, and furthermore, it's not just psychopaths who engage in abuse, people who have borderline personality disorder, people who are manic depressive. And so it is not, it is not simply uh, uh, one set of, of, mental, uh, of mental disorders in which no. all abuse falls. Yeah. So I would say, um, so there is not a higher proportion or propensity to psychopathy within abusers than there is in the general population when we're talking about domestic abuse. And um, borderline personality disorder is massively problematic. Um, it is possibly getting taken out of the next diagnostic, um, the DSM. Uh, it is still in the DSM five. Yeah, but it is possibly being taken out in the next one. Because who knew that we were going to get more enraged? Uh, look, I am I am a guy who actually has a DSM four and a DSM. M5 on my desk. Okay, so what I would, yeah, it is currently in, but there's conversations about taking it out because every. Well, no, wait a minute. The DSM 5 is currently the standard. Yes. And it was only just released. The DSM 6, that steering committee is not even fully formed yet. You are speculating about the removal Mm -hmm. of borderline personality disorder from a set of committees that is not even formed. So before we get too far into the mental illness discussion, and um, I will uh, be glad to uh, sit as moderator in that discussion, (laughs) I I want to make sure that we do not get lose the theology part of this. So let's let's finish. Yeah, let's let's finish. This is what happens, though. This is what happens. (laughs) This conversation happens. I've seen it time and again. And all of the other bits are so much fun. Nobody wants to talk about the theology, but from a Christian perspective, it's all about the theology. The whole game is the theology. And so if you don't have that, the rest of it is kind of, you know, just interesting. So that said, let's let me let me go ahead and and see if we can sort the theology out. Um, that's the easy part. <laughs> and then we'll see if we can <laughs> do all the hard part. So, um, so h- here it is. And this is the theology that I would have had from the time I was seven. Uh, it is the theology that if I were still a Christian today, I would still have. Now, I would, I would try to find some way around it. But honestly, if I'm being honest with what I think the Bible says, I still study the Bible. I still study it academically. This is what I think it says. So here is uh, my theological case. It's not that hard. It's nothing that you've never heard before. Uh, I I just want to get uh, some responses from you. So I would start with the beginning. Uh, The creation story is um, 
man being the creation, woman being the uh, afterthought. And the way that story is written, there's just no other honest way to read it, in my opinion. She's described as a help meet. I actually like that translation because it's so naughty. Um, she's, she's a helper to the man. Uh, the man uh, could not find a suitable companion among the animals. This is how the story is written. We don't see that drama, by the way, with the other animals. <laughs> we don't see giraffes running around looking at the deer saying, maybe? Um, so, uh, but, but for whatever reason, uh, the man was without a suitable companion, and that problem had to be corrected. And that is why women were made. That is, that is how the story is told. And then there's, um, beyond that is the... Um, Part of the woman's punishment, when the punishments were handed out, with that, was that she was subordinate to man. So if you, if you look at Genesis 3.17, uh, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. Uh, with pain you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Um, that seems pretty, pretty harsh, but also pretty pretty plain language. So when we get to Jesus, Jesus is a person who at least validates uh, the, the creation story as a literal idea. When we get to Paul, Paul uses the um, aspect of the creation story that we've just talked about to justify his orders to the church. So if you let me read another passage here, 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 10, for a man shall not have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. Now, that, by the, that's very interesting. The man is the image and glory of God, not the woman. But the woman is the glory of man, the passage goes on. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Never mind a bi biology lesson. Neither was man created uh, for the sake of woman, but the woman for man. For this reason, woman should have a symbol of authority over her head, and uh, because of the angels. I'm just going <laughs> to ignore that because of the angels part, because no one knows what on earth is talking about. Um, my next part of the argument, uh, also belonging to Paul, Paul um, separately refers to the law as a reason for um, the subordination of women in the church. Uh, if you'll allow me to read for, uh, oh, verse 33 and 34, last part 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Rather, let them be in submission, as in fact the law says. Now, I fully acknowledge we don't know what law Paul is talking about here. And then, um, getting toward the end of um, my argument here, Paul gives yet another reason uh, that egalitarianism is not really the right model. Um, but uh, it was it was the woman and not the man who was deceived. And once again, I find this a very troubling passage. Uh, I, I did when I was a Christian, by the way. A woman must learn quietly with all submission. This is First uh, Timothy two eleven through fifteen. If if anyone's following along, um, a woman must learn quietly with all submission. But I do not allow a woman to teach uh, or. Uh, exercise authority over a man. She must remain quiet, for Adam was formed first. This is the second time Paul says this. Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Then Adam was not uh, deceived, but the woman, because she was fully deceived, fell into transgression, but she will be delivered through childbearing if she continues in faith and love. And That's, that's an awful and disgusting pa passage. Just one final point. Um, 
So here, in, in the previous passages, Paul uh, restates his earlier reasons that a woman was formed second, not first. He has the part about her being deceived. And uh, he innovates uh, with the idea that she'll be saved through childbearing. And these are, these are fairly clear passages that, and I know that there are other passages in the Bible that seem to speak to egalitarianism, but these passages have to be dealt with before you leap over them and just say egalitarianism. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see the, the writers of the early Bible. I don't see Jesus and I don't see Paul uh, giving us a sense that from the beginning egalitarianism. So I, I question how Christians get there. And I want to give you a chance to give an answer to that. So, I mean, I think the presumption is that complementarianism has been the dominant thing throughout history, but actually, like, the term complementarian and that kind of the John Piper-esque argument for, you know, why women can't be police officers, etc., all of that kind of started in the 1970s as a response to Christian feminism. So I don't think it, it's accurate to say that like you know that it's like that you can't get to egalitarianism because throughout history um there's always been people who've got to that point who've got to a point of seeing the bible as being liberating for women um so like josephine butler who was in the like 1700s in the uk yeah in the uk um You've got like the Grim Case sisters who um, were part of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, even kind of you could argue the same about race within the Bible that you can argue for slavery. But there were always been people throughout history who've looked at the Bible and they've found it a place they've found it is liberating for women or for slaves or for whichever people group that they feel called to, like the, the liberation theology in Latin America. So I think yeah, but did they like, find did they find that in the Bible or did they bring it to the Bible? Well, I think it like it's a conversation. I don't think like the Bible, like I would say that it, that these things are mutually like it's a dialogue. So I wouldn't say that we, there's not we bring more to the Bible than we ever take away, right? But we also, um, so I think there's there's lots of I don't think we can deny that they didn't it didn't that their their own perspective influenced them, but they were absolutely motivated by their faith. They weren't motivated by some like I don't know humanistic notion. Martin Luther King was in entirely motivated by a belief in Jesus being as, and, and the Bible saving people and, and liberating them. So I think I would say, you know, and I know he was that's also what, motivated by not being made a slave. Well, of Let, course. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to say, well, when you're a Christian and you've got these, this social conscience that you got the social conscience from your Christianity. And that's not, that's not really the case. You've got your social conscience and you're a Christian and you found a way to merge them. And I'm I'm simply talking about what you can draw from the Bible reasonably. Okay, so what I would say is, so I know that the, I would say that um, in terms of the actual passages, so looking at the creation account, we can either say that like woman was an afterthought, or we can say that God saved the best to last, which is my argument. <laughs> okay, well, that, I mean that's neat. That's that's I don't. I don't. I don't want to diminish that by saying that's cute, but that's not. Yes, that's not know. the Bible story. <laughs> the Bible story is 
it, the you virus. Of creation ordinance. It is, a, it is an argument that lots of complementarians give. They give an argument that says, well, man was created before woman, therefore man's more important. Well, that's that, what Paul said twice. But that doesn't mean that that's just. But, but so I would say that um, actually. There's something about the the mutual the mutuality within this theology about the fact that we're codependent on one another that we are not in a sort of unhealthy level of codependence but that actually human beings are not isolated creatures that can just act independently of one another that we are we're dependent on each other for life like that we we don't we don't exist independently so i would say that you can see that in the the theology and creation um you know if you look at the word for help me which is a really problematic translation that that word that is used for helper in in genesis is used more often of god than of anyone else so it's not that when we're talking about helper we're talking about a subservient role we're talking about a you know um the 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 term suitable partner when you look at the original the original language it would be sorry of um kind of it should be equal partner or, or but you paul know. didn't see it that way he said yeah. twice in two different occasions to do two different audiences the man was formed first and then the woman and and he gave this as a reason for why the woman is subservient do you think that paul was wrong when he said that Yes. Well, I think I think that in a in our current context, with what we currently understand of the world, Paul was wrong. Can I say I don't I don't have his I'm, I wasn't there like two thousand years ago when he said that, and I don't know what the context. Was, I, so I, I was there, and he was still wrong um, then. Guys, let me ask this, <laughs> let me ask this question because every listener wants to know this. One. Every listener to the show now wants to know. One. If we weren't there. And we have stacked up evidence on David's side for for a simple reading that is that is complementary. Yeah. And and Natalie, I, I I'm I want to acknowledge that I think you've made a case for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So so let's say that the cases are equal right now. Every listener has been listening, and they are asking the two of you, what is the tiebreaker? I suppose I would not. I'm not a Christian because the Bible says stuff. I'm a Christian because I radically experienced God transform my life. And yeah, I that radically... doesn't help a person who has not radically no, experienced no, that. No, okay, so, but what I'm saying is I don't think that my position is convincing unless people have a radical experience of God. So absolutely... Mm-hmm. You have the time, and I can't advocate for anything. Else. I can't advocate for. Well, if you read the Bible this way, you'll come to my 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 view. You won't. You'll come to my view if you have a radical experience of God, and that's the only way that people could come to that position. If you go to the Bible cold without an experience of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit in your life, absolutely, complementarianism is the, is a very easy thing to come to the conclusion of. But there's a reason why the majority of the social reformers, the majority of those who fought for liberation and achieved it, um, saw the Bible in the light of, of egalitarian and liberation models because actually they were informed by the Holy Spirit. So that's what I'd say. And absolutely, if you're an atheist, if you don't have an experience of God, you are not going to come to this conclusion. And I can't convince you with the scriptural message because, like, I don't think scripture is... I don't. I wouldn't come to this conclusion that I, I wouldn't be a Christian. <laughs> like, I think the fact that there's enough women that are Christians is probably one of the arguments that Christianity has to have something going for it because there is absolutely no good reason for me as somebody 
with a feminist value system to have anything to do with the Bible, except that my experience of God and of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus has transformed and saved me, and I've experienced miraculous things. That is why I'm a Christian, not because of the Bible fundamentally, although I do Bible has something to say. So this is so where I should grace said. this is where I should yep. gracefully bow out and I will after this statement. <laughs> so, because I had said before the program that if I if I got you to say something like that, I yeah. I would um, say, yep, okay, well that that's that's as far as we can get. But we can't go one step further. Because like I have to say from my experience of, of yeah. being a Christian, that that argument argument would not have worked uh, on me. It would not work on my parents. It would not work on the community people I know as Christians. And the reason is because, uh, ironically enough, of other things that the Bible says, in, uh, in particular, Paul. So when he's talking to the Galatians, he is really concerned about them going off and worshiping other gods or, or going back into Judaism and, you know, backsliding, that sort of thing. And he's, he makes the strongest kind of statement, though we are an angel from heaven, preach to you any other gospel than that which you have received, let him be accursed. He says this twice uh, for emphasis sake. And so it is so strong to him that even if you have the experience of an angel telling you differently, you should ignore the angel. You should ignore the angel. So my understanding from that would be that the gospel of Christ crucified, that is the fundamental of the gospel, that if you have a gospel which doesn't center Jesus as the center of of the truth, that's when you've got a problem. So I would say, I don't think I would read that not as, if if you don't believe and agree with absolutely every word that Paul said 2,000 years after he said it, Paul didn't even think he'd, there'd be 2,000 years. He thought Jesus was like about to come back. Right, he so, was wrong about that too. We agree. So, you know, so I think for me, like, actually, my 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 view, I, I absolutely appreciate that most people like, are more like, you know, that, that this might not work for a lot of Christians. But like, literally, the only thing that is going to change people's lives is Jesus not not reading the Bible and going and I, but actually to be fair I did speak to a guy this week who was complementarian and he read loads of really good books about theology that were pro egalitarian he became egalitarian through reading reading these theological arguments so I think it is you know it is possible for people to do it but I think fundamentally like for somebody who is not a believer there is absolutely no way for them to come to a conclusion that the the bible is pro-women um because in lots of ways it's not but actually like i hold it in tension with the fact that my experience of god has been liberating so since that's what i wanted you to say anyway and you said it twice i i relent (laughs) so that is that is the easy natalie you deserve a gold star that is the easiest anyone has ever gotten david to relent (laughs) I've got, some, I've got some math that I haven't used up yet, and I'm going to have to just let it go. <laughs> um, Natalie, if you, if you don't mind me just yeah. saying one thing on the back of that. I, I, for all of the listeners, I really do appreciate the idea that you want all people, regardless of gender or color or sexual orientation or, or my solid guess is any other protected class. 
I really do appreciate the fact that you want those people to be uh, uh, treated equally. Mm. For me, I look at, uh, you know, 5,000 years of, of human history going back through, uh, you know, going back through uh, Jewish history, what we know of it. And, and by the way, I don't think the Old Testament is what we know of it. Uh, but let's, let's go back through Christianity and, and through Jewish history. And I think um, whatever you think about egalitarianism, you just didn't get there through the Bible. No. Like, Respectfully. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the reasons we got there is because of flipping contraception, isn't it? Like, like in reality, <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't is. have like, and I think one of the challenges is that like, like the idea that equality is the goal. That's why I call myself a gender justice specialist, not a gender equality specialist, because I don't I'm not. I, I think the idea of equality is the goal is problematic um, because mm. actually like I'm I'm somebody who can grow new humans inside of me or somebody who can't grow new humans inside of you. And so there's certain things that I'm going to need protections from and the ways that I'm going to need workplaces to work and practically right. how the world's going to work is going to be different than what you need. And the problem right. with society is not that I need to be able to have the same rights as you within the workplace. It's that we need a workplace that works for people who can grow humans inside of them. And so I think, yeah, that overall, it's a, it's, it's a much more... You know, with that before contraception, absolutely, human beings, there was no chance for women to achieve equality with men. I mean, but, you know, nuns, I mean, like nuns are flipping radical. You know, they were like, we're not going to get married. We're not having babies. We're going to read, you know. So I think and, that, and by the way, a, a truly horrid article. Well, well just a moment, before you get there, before you get there, uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're, fli yes, we're, flipping, we're flipping the page here from the theological discussion. And I just want to say... For the listener who may not have picked it up, uh, I honestly don't care um, how a person mangles the scripture to get to egalitarianism. I just want them, I just want them to get there, and yeah. so it it does not actually matter to me if I think that um, you know you you may have taken a circuitous route uh, <laughs> of uh, an end around uh, what the Bible says instead of you know because of what the Bible says it doesn't matter and um, well, I'm I'm in favor of uh, <laughs> of of that sort of gymnastics if that if that's what it takes so that's that said uh, I know that uh, Andrew has a, a few questions this is the last section of it how are we doing on time by the way uh, are I you, have no idea I mean I don't I don't care about how much time we spent over an hour we definitely hit the hour mark a little while ago okay <laughs> one twenty one at the moment okay Natalie you call quits whenever you want and and David I sucked as a moderator so feel <laughs> equally free to uh, you know to to say whatever you want to say because I just sucked at it. I'm gonna I'm I gonna don't. I'm gonna moderate by bowing out mostly and uh, <laughs> saying <what> so. <laughs> this <laughs> this next section this next segment though is is gonna uh, this last segment is gonna focus on I think more of, of the practical issues and here I what I hope to see out of this discussion that I'm gonna stay out of mostly is some talk about the uh, Me Too slash Church 2 movement, especially about the Church 2 part. Yeah. Um, and 
So at any rate, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the mic to Andrew because I know he has some specific questions. And I'm not going to let you stay out of it because some of these are yours. So. So so Natalie, yes. we have found some points of agreement, right? Yeah. Um, and and some of those points of agreement, uh, just to just to tick them off, are uh, that that we agree that we can be kind to one another simply because of empathy. We don't yeah. actually have to go a lot further. And we can agree that, uh, that we need better social justice for, prote uh, for protected classes of all kinds. Whether we, it's yeah, and I think for, like I would say, even like for human beings, so I wouldn't want to just talk about protected classes. I think, you know, white men need, sure. <laughs> you know, like, like rich, sure. you know, rich people. All and, of Andrew agrees. I do. <laughs> and, and, and so I mentioned protected classes specifically because at least on our side of the pond, at least in the United States, we are going through a period of retraction where... Yeah protected classes are suffering losses in the current political climate. And I am not going to turn Still Unbelievable uh, into a, a show about politics, but I understand from, from friends there in the, U, in the UK, from Chris and, and uh, Matthew and, and Sarah, et cetera, although Sarah's not in the UK, I understand that some protected classes in the, uh, in the UK are suffering some retraction of, of social freedoms as well. Well, we're seeing with Brexit. Brexit has hugely impacted um, immigrants, yeah. particularly. Yeah. Right. So, so I just wanted to start on a note of agreement because we have carved out some ground where we can reach across the aisle and say, whatever the rest of our views are, however we get to equal treatment of each other, mm. we we can agree. Uh, you know, egalitarianism. Although I think starting it in the church is the wrong place to start it for for reasons previously stated uh yes let's reach across the aisle and let's do those things that cause us uh to exercise those neural pathways that strengthen egalitarian behavior let's give more right let's meditate more on how to be good to each other because as we practice being good to each other that gets easier now you and i can have conversations about borderline personality disorder or psychopathy and, and what the scale is and all of that sort of thing. But all other things being equal, or we're not talking about mental disorder, we can get better at treating each other better. But I think, yeah, we can. I think, though, I think it's a complex picture what we, when we when we bring, uh, I would say, what I would describe as powers and principalities, so things like capitalism. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking about demons here. Okay. About, like, <laughs> okay, sorry. Maybe I drew a conclusion a little too early. Yeah. <laughs> about like, capitalism and consumerism and racism and sexism and there's all these, mm. all these, uh, like what uh, the theologian Walter Wink talks about powers, these as powers and principalities. We're not talking about kind of demons inhabiting people, but actually these these oppressive structures mm. um, that co-opt and manipulate and 
cause you know so it's uh, absolutely i can become a more empathic person but at the same time i exist in a world where my neural pathways are being assaulted at every moment by lots and lots of images of women as objectified and sexualized where um every image i see of a man is of someone powerful and, and every image of a woman is someone sexualized and so we are all um kind of be it, we we don't just exist in a vacuum independent of all these other messages that we're getting about who is valuable and who is not and how we should be and who we shouldn't be so let me let me go on the record here and say i am absolutely against the notion of hypersexualizing women mm. uh so so we just agree there okay yeah. I'm absolutely against the notion of hypersexualizing women i have women in my life who are very important to me Okay. And this topic is a huge one. And I'll say to all the guys out there, if you have important women in your life and this is not an important topic, it's because you're scared to talk about it and it's time to stop being scared to talk about it. And even okay. if they don't now, have <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Still, I was just gonna say, even if they don't have important women in their life, they should still think this is an important topic because women are race. But sure. yeah, so carry on. So we agree there. Now yeah. Here's let, let me let me take us off the rails of agreement into mm -hmm. the into the weeds. Otherwise, David's going to yell at me when the show's over. Um, so, so how is it that the hashtag Church Two movement mm. started after hashtag Me Too? Because uh, this will be short, I promise. Because yeah. Christianity is supposed to be that thing that gives us the best of us. Mm -hmm. And Christianity is supposed to be that thing that leads the ethical way. It's the shining light for, for the ethics of our culture, supposedly. But what I see out of Christianity is not women who are mistreated in churches beating down the doors to go to their preachers to say, hey, I was mistreated. Because preachers aren't the ones solving the problems. The reason we have a hashtag MeToo movement is because women finally said, I've had enough. And the only place I can turn is not to my churches. It's to the secular authority that can do something about it. So why did the hashtag MeToo movement start first rather than hashtag church too? Why wasn't Christianity leading the way? Uh, do you want to know something? Um, I don't want to like blow my own trumpet here, but like um, years ago I worked for an organization and we set up a, com a campaign that had a Twitter hashtag that was in churches too. And it was before the MeToo movement ex became what it is. So I think. Right, but that, does, but that doesn't answer the question though. No, what because I'm you use the word movement, and that's what yeah. I'm talking about. Okay, so what I would say is that there has always been Christians working to address sexual violence. One of the biggest campaigners in the in the UK is a, was a woman called Jill Soward who died um, last year, and she um, was involved in campaigns to ra reform rape laws, and and she did that as sure. a result of Christian faith. There was Josephine Butler who who she set up prayer groups around the UK to revoke um, back in oh, a couple hundred years ago. They brought in laws which meant that women exploited in prostitution could be arrested and held for six months. And she worked to overturn those laws. There's always there's always Christians that, you know, I've been involved in um, an organization called Peace and Safety in the Christian Home. And they have worked. Um, they worked. Um, Kathy Clark Koga, she was working on domestic violence in the church and outside of the church 50 years ago. So there has always been Christians doing this stuff. 
Um, but actually, you are right that that is battling the dominant narratives of the church. But I would say that you would you could also argue battling that anybody working to address sexual violence is battling the dominant narratives of every culture. Like it, you know, and the idea mm. that you could go to secular authorities and actually be taken serious is just not true. It is not true that if you report sexual violence to the police, you will experience a positive and liberating experience. You you may experience a worse experience than going to church, talk to your church leader sadly that it's not true that secular services are necessarily better than christian ones unfortunately okay i've got to uh i'm going to give some of that ground back because you are absolutely right to say that part of the reason that hashtag me too didn't start 2000 years ago is because secular authorities didn't behave any better than church authorities the reason that we got to hashtag me too, in my view, as as a guy who probably has not a lot of room to talk about this, right? So, so uh, listeners, if you're chuckling, I, I accept that you're chuckling at me. That's fine. But it seems to me that the reason we got to hashtag me too is because we finally reached a critical mass in society and a moment with technology where we could talk about these things openly without a a without a patriarchal. Uh, hierarchy in place to sort of stymie the conversation. Women could have this conversation without men involved. And And it seems to me that if Christianity has done anything wrong, here's what it's done wrong. It didn't let this conversation happen before. And I, look, I don't care if you think Jesus was egalitarian or not. I, d- I don't. I don't right. <laughs> okay. okay, look, sorry. I'm not trying to paint you with a brush there. That was the editorial you, not the... Not the <laughs> okay, seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm not being accusative. The thing that gripes me about Christianity is that I don't see egalitarianism in it at all. Yeah, well, I would... So the founder of the Me Too movement a decade ago, Tarana Burke, is a Christian... So even, I know that she's not the one who made it very famous. It was lots of celebrities who made it famous. Mm. I would mm. say, right, the reason why um, things have shifted is not because anything has changed, but because technology has given women a voice that they didn't have and given it a capacity of women to share their experiences that they hadn't been able to do previously, either in the church or anywhere else. And yeah, I think um, there's always been, you know, one of the first refuges in the UK was set up by Christians. There's ref- refugees in the US run by Christians that there are mm-hmm. all Christians working but unfortunately they are the outliers and this is I, I preached a sermon um, uh, last Sunday where I was at challenging all these Christians I was saying to them like do you want to be the, the 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 Christians in Germany when um, when uh, Bonhoeffer was writing who were pro-Nazi because it was giving them a voice and you know after the enlightenment the Nazis were going oh you know no the church is important and all the Christians went oh yes do you want to be them or do you want to be Bonhoeffer in that situation mm. actually, you know, speaking out, do you want to be all the Christians who wrote um, you know, who took bits out of the Bible to make it the, the okay for slaves to read you know, who, who who argued that slavery was justifiable or do you want to be, um, do you want to be Sojourner Truth who was one of those who said no, this isn't acceptable, so absolutely, the dominant the dominant, do, dominant nature of Christianity is always going to be in um, partnership with powers and principalities that are really top 
toxic and damaging but there are always going to be christians at the forefront of social justice movements and motivated by their faith um and you know that was the reality with the early church what you know <laughs> it wasn't everybody i think and that's the case with every movement like you know um there is that the every movement for for change is always a tiny minority of the wider population i think within the church you just see a microcosm of what you see of human behavior it's not any different it's just it's just pronounced because they're supposed to be better so let me but, let me, so let me jump in go ahead David. let me jump in with uh, a quick point of clarification though um so uh, earlier you you mentioned that it was christians who were at the forefront of the me too movement and uh, i think you mentioned slavery uh, as as well earlier and whereas I don't want to sidetrack and talk about slavery, I just want to say that I hear this point a lot, but the point that I don't hear rebutted <laughs> coming coming back that seems obvious is that the, the Christians who were uh, advocating to free the slaves were advocating against other Christians who owned the slaves. And so it's, it's not quite fair to say that Christians were at the forefront of solving the problem because they were at the forefront of the problem. Um, yeah, well, as, as, as well. And, and the, Me, the Me Too Church Too movement is a little bit like that. So you, you can say, well, it was Christians that were the catalyst of the Me Too movement. But, but the fact that we have a Church Too movement means that the church is also the problem. Of course. Like, of course, and that, that the reality is that wherever you have humans, you have men. You have people making terrible tweets. You have toxicity. You have power misuse. And the church is not immune. Like the church is 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 full of human beings. And but, but doesn't I, that doesn't that say that the Christian solution, whatever that's supposed to be, just is ineffective? So when I was listening to your yeah. your debate with, um, oh, I'm sorry. Phil. Uh, Phil, yeah, Phil Moore. When uh, when I was listening to your debate with Phil, Phil kept trying to. It felt like kind of sweep this under the rug by saying, "Oh, the real answer is he that we yeah, we just come alongside Jesus, and and that will that will fix us." The fact is, the church has been alongside Jesus for two thousand years. That that's not an answer, and it, it seems like we have to we have to get beyond the postcards and the platitudes uh, uh, with you know Christians in particular. If Jesus was going to be the answer here, we wouldn't have a church to problem. And so we've got to we've got to deal with more real solutions than that. That's all I had to say. So I would say um, that, that, yeah, so like one of the things Phil kind of was saying was, oh, if my ex-husband had been discipled properly and been a, you know, a good Christian, you know, then he wouldn't have been abusive. That's just not true. There's plenty of church leaders who are abusive, who are, you know, on some of the biggest platforms in the world. You know, the reality is The that Catholics just admitted. Right? Yeah, exactly. and, and the answer is not that they were not discipled properly. I was no, very, I was very no. insulted by that answer. <laughs> yeah, well, I just think, you know, it, I mean, it's just really problematic, this idea that, um, because you're right, if if it was just that being kind of caught up in Christian in a Christian culture with um, the kind of Christian belief system, if that was that sh if that was enough, to, then there wouldn't be abuse in the church, and there is, and so it's not enough, absolutely. Um, you know, and you're right. You know, the cause of colonialism is very much caught up with Christian power. The cause of you know the the, um, the slavery was very much caught up with christians you know i mean you cannot there's very few movements of oppression in the world that you can look at and not point at christian oh. white 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 christians as 
part of the problem so absolutely like i'm totally sympathetic to anybody who's like this just needs throwing in the bin but like i just that's not my experience has been that the liberation that i've experienced and the the many christians i know who are working for social change and working to a much greater degree for social change than most of the atheists that i know not that not all of them there's plenty of atheists and i tell you who is mostly um it's most of the feminists that i know that are working for social change to potentially a much larger degree than the christian maybe but there are lots of Christians motivated by their faith to affect change in the world and I would say that 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 is the that you know potentially that there are lots of people who don't have a faith who are only interested in themselves so I think I don't think you can you could point to lots of very terrible people who were atheists or not Christians or whatever so I don't think it's an argument for being a Christian or not I think it's an argument for the whole the brokenness of humanity Okay, and that actually leads me to the next question. Uh, By the way, I want to put a pin in something you said there because I'd love to have you back in the future if after we're done here you decide that we're worth talking to us. (laughs) From my perspective, this has been so much fun. I love it. So I want want you back to talk about uh, whether uh, skeptics and atheists and non-Christians who are also non-believers in other faiths are doing less than Christians are doing. I, I would like to have that conversation in the open where we have both prepared arguments and we can yeah. talk about that cogently because I don't think that's the case. And I uh, I have another podcast, David Does Skeptics and Seekers. I do Ask an Atheist Anything with Matthew Taylor. And one of the things we're doing starting this year in our next episode is, uh, is inviting a guest on for the C segment of every Ask an Atheist Anything who is a representative of, uh, of some uh, atheist uh, nonprofit organization or charitable organization. And so I would like to have that conversation because part of my life is devoted to pointing out where skeptics and atheists do have nonprofit and charitable organizations doing good. And I would so never deny or invalidate the uh, the many people I know or the many people across the world who are motivated to make a difference in the world because of their valuing of human humanism. I wouldn't ever want to say that there aren't people doing that, but I mm. I think you know there are lots of Christians that are doing good stuff that are affecting change and throughout human history who have. And I wouldn't want to say that they can't be invalidated by the fact that Christians can be a nightmare. Well, okay, and and I'm not taking. Look, it would be silly for any skeptic to say Christianity hasn't done good in the world. So yeah. that is not the position. That is not the position I take. Yeah. I don't believe that it's the position David takes. No. And to be clear, I my position is I'm I'm glad to see good done wherever it's done. But I do think that when you take the Christian path, that does have some other consequences, some knock-on consequences that can affect the the level of good that you do. I mean, earlier yeah. in this conversation, we were talking about. Um, uh, mental health and whether or not a person is it has it's completely a, a product of free will, their behavior is free, a product of yeah. free will, or whether there are other things that might uh, lean on that. And I, I believe that you have a position that is in line with the Christian idea of libertarian free will. And I think that if you were not a Christian, you would not hold that position. You would see other influences. And so I, I think that even though your Christianity has brought you to a good place, I think it I think it stops you from going further than you could 
because you still have some baggage that you have to uphold that is purely Christian that does not necessarily fit the research. So I would I would want to clarify that my position on mental health isn't from a Christian perspective. But I mean, obviously I'm a Christian and I hold it. Um, it comes from um, the the work um, being done around uh, trauma and also um, the work um, the British Psychological Society have, have developed a new framework for understanding mental health um, called the Power Threat Meaning Framework, which critiques the. Um, the diagnosis of mental health issues and the pathologization of distress and I would say that actually I'm quite unusual within Christian culture to be taking that view so the vast majority of Christians either demonize mental health that it's the problem that demons have you know inhabited you or they take a pathologization view that this is an illness that you can't do anything about and um, take the sort of blame or brain approach that either it's your own character flaw or it's your brain and I would say that it is about um, so the power threat meaning framework has a holds a position that that the vast vast majority of mental health issues are a result of the negative operation of power in people's lives and it looks at power as um as holistically as structures and systems as well as kind of abuse and oppression and so i would just say that fundamentally my view around mental health and the arguments i would have from that and not coming from a i mean i would say that there's a christian kind of way of understanding that but it isn't coming from but I think you, that so you've just I've, very well defined the topic of, of your next visit to uh, Still Unbelievable. <laughs> well, so let me let me just say that uh, some of what you were some of what you were nibbling around there has to do with cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, no, so, I'm not a fan of cognitive behavioral therapy. I have to say, um, I only. Uh, okay. I am. So cognitive behavioral therapy was developed to treat phobias, right? To treat irrational. Um, and well, in, in part, sure. Yeah, it's really good for treating those sort of things. The problem is when CBT is used to try and treat people with trauma because trauma needs particular um, treatments because of how the brain works and the, the looking at the, the lower brain and the fight, flight and freeze response and all the kind of stuff that goes on there. But yes, so, um, yeah. So, so once again, I think, I think you're guilty of, of painting a picture that's binary that's not binary. The fact that cognitive behavioral therapy is used to treat phobia does not mean that it can't be used to treat things that would, from a diagnostic perspective, uh, be rated as less than a phobia. So those things don't follow at all. But to to go a step further, um, we... Oh, by the way, I need to pay off. Um, the right suprafrontal gyrus is the... Uh, is the structure inside the brain that is responsible for correcting ego, uh, egocentric response. So I needed to pay that off from earlier. Okay. Um, but but when I, you, I had mine removed. And but this is this is actually this is actually part of uh, so if if the if the right suprafrontal gyrus doesn't activate properly, we see this in sociopaths, right? They um. Uh, they don't have the same sort of sympathetic response, right? So we do know that there are brain structures responsible for uh, the full range of emotional response. And what it sounds to me like you're saying is the brain is just this big ball of, of goo that doesn't do anything in particular. No, I'm not and, and so that is not the case. The, the brain is an incredibly sophisticated organ that can have a whole range of, uh, of defects, and those defects actually have implications for how we think and respond. 
So I would say that the, we can't, it's very difficult to argue that anything is innate within the brain easily when with what we understand of neuroplasticity and how our brain develops in relationship to the world. The, the, it, uh, the work of Bessel van der Kolk, so Bessel van der Kolk's work around trauma, he's the one who said that CBT is not an effective response to trauma. Okay, um, so now we're going to argue authorities. So right. no, no. I, I mean, I think I think it will. So I I would say my view around abusers not be having mental health problems in the most part is not from a Christian perspective. Is that is holding a feminist analysis of male violence. Lundy Bancroft, who's one of the um, bigger big experts around. Mm violence is not coming from a christian point of view um evan stark who is another um who works on coercive control and has written kind of the seminal text around male violence um around domestic abuse not none of them would say that mental illness is the cause of of perpetration of abuse and the the, the major vast majority of perpetrators do not have mental health problems similarly how yeah, i don't care the cause so it's <laughs> So that is, and, and actually, somebody with a mental health issue is much more likely to be vulnerable to being abused than they are to perpetrate abuse. Um, okay, abuse one in, for the listeners, ncbi.nlm.gov. We can argue statistics all day long, but the National Center for Bioinformatics, uh, go to ncbi.nlm.gov. You can look up statistics that are entirely contrary to what you're saying. And please go to oneinsix.org because you are sort of perpetrating a myth about uh, about the idea that guys can't be sexually abused and that it harms them less. No, I'm not saying that it harms them less. I'm saying men are less likely to be abused. And actually, most of the one in six men who are abused are abused by men. So the perpetration of abuse is dominated by male perpetrators. But that's not actually what we're arguing about. What we're arguing about is not whether most men, uh, whether men are more likely to be the abusers. What we're actually talking about here is whether everyone can be a victim of abuse. Because what you appear to be claiming is, oh, well, it's, you know, this is a, this is a woman problem. It's not a woman problem. It's a society problem. It's a man Men, problem. Men are the is, ones perpetrating it. It's not a woman problem. It's a man problem. Well, both genders, well, in fact, all genders, because we're not talking about, um, about gender binary issues here. People of both genders are capable of being abused. Yeah, but I'm not. Talk what I'm saying is the problem is that the 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 is a man problem because men are perpetrating. Let, it let me let me just step in just real briefly in an attempt to be a good moderator. <laughs> okay. uh, I I think that we have reached the point of the program where uh, we have no, it isn't. Yes, it is. Uh, he said, she said. This is why okay, we you're, should you're come back. Break the time. <laughs> this is why we should come back and do and do um, a more in-depth program on this one. We've uh, had a chance to do a little research. I would, I would say, uh, Natalie, this, this is not my area of speciality. So, um, there's a reason why I decided to remain silent through most of it, but, <laughs> but it, it does seem to me a couple of things about male abuse. Uh, male abuse is extremely underreported. Do you mean uh, of men being per men being men, subjected as far as to being, men being the victim? This I, I, w I think that that would be extremely underreported. I would it is. I would also say that in terms of women not being abusers, I think that is largely true because of the power dynamic not being in their favor most of the time. But what we have seen is when women do hold power, 
they they uh, repeat many of the same behaviors that men did when they held power. They they do not, in fact, seem to be wired differently. That no, absolutely. Like I'm not saying that I, I the reason why I would say that um, perpetration of abuse is not about mental health issues is because men because we're not we don't see equal weights of women and men perpetrating even though women to some degree there are kind of women often have certain mental health issues more than men. Right, but we don't um, see equal we don't see equal weights of women and men holding power in society, no. and so that's only just starting to to um, get to balance. Yeah, and I think that's a statistic that we're not going to see right away. No, it's because, so I would argue that the reason somebody is abusive is because they hold beliefs of ownership and entitlement, that they believe they own their partner and they are entitled to do what they want to their partner. And we live in a society where men are much more likely to be socialised into those beliefs than women are. And so absolutely, if we live in a more equal society, one of the consequences may be that women are more likely to develop those beliefs too. Okay, Okay. well, so, so let's pretend you're right. Then what we need to do I'm is... Ten. Just think I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't have any doubt that you think you are. The, <laughs> the question is whether the statistics back you. So I'll say again, I encourage all of our listeners to go off to ncbi.nlm.gov and just look at some of the research. And then I want you to research the justice system in the United States. I want you to look at the prisoner population because we actually have statistics about reports of abuse in the prison system. And and just draw a conclusion. Do more men commit abuse? I agreed to that early on. I said yes to that. But we're not talking about a specific gender problem in terms of who is being abused. Well, well and I and I don't think we're talking about a specific gender problem of who is doing abuse. I think it's a power problem and it's it 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 plays out whether the person is a man or a woman. I, I I think as much as I empathize with everything that you are saying, uh, Natalie, I I know too many women who have simply who have simply slotted into the man position when they got the power. They they they're, they're not better. <laughs> I don't think women are better. I don't think women are innately better than men. I think theologically, I wouldn't argue for that, and I wouldn't argue for it like socially or psychologically. Um, it's about opportunity and socialization. Um, but but yeah, but at the minute, women are more likely to be subjected to. It. If we're looking at domestic abuse, particularly if we look at child abuse, that's a different conversation. If we're looking at sexual violence more generally, um, you know. But actually, globally, women are the majority victims of of male violence. Um, although men are also victims and the impact as you say can be really difficult for men too though um yeah i mean there's one piece of research in the uk that found whoever called the police women were more likely than men to be arrested so often this idea that men are not believed isn't always shown in the data okay so that's reprehensible Mm -hmm. uh that's that's awful um i and you know so uh, loud support. Say that that research is called "Who Does What to Whom" by uh, Marianne Hester. If people want to read more of it, sure. Okay. And, and so that is that is awful, and uh, you know it should be corrected and it should be publicized, right? We we are not supporting a, a, a male hierarchy here where men get no, power. No, I don't. I, I'm I'm almost afraid of making the comments that I made because I don't want people to think that I am somehow. Setting aside the problems that women face or uh, trying to defend white men. 
I, I am not. <laughs> so. I think part of it also is around um, like our socialization of emotion. So although men are socialized mm. not to show emotion, when men cry, we believe them. When men cry, women cry, we say they're on their period. So there is a whole kind of... So actually in terms of when somebody does disclose, how they experience that disclosure and how we... You know, um, there's lots and lots of complexities to it. But, you know... That's absolutely true. That's yeah. an issue. Absolutely yeah. agree. So let me ask you a final question. Um, I have uh, I have a child on the way, actually. Uh, and I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have uh, it's a children. Girl. It, it, yes, I have a little girl on the way. I also. I hope have, it wasn't a secret. It's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, don't tell me your secrets. <laughs> Just don't. I'm like, I got a microphone, man. It's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you. Boy, are we going to have a conversation? It's not a um, so, uh, where was I? Thanks, you David. Have, yeah, sorry about that. Right. So, so I, have, I have a child on the way. Um, and we've acknowledged that the Christian church has a problem with a, uh, with a male-dominated hierarchy, with a, a, a patriarchal relationship in a place where uh, women... Uh, can be abused, and in fact, because of a culturization, are less likely to report and more likely, according to you, uh, yes. seven years, right? Um, they are more likely to stay in those relationships. Why would I ever send my daughter to church? So I have two children who are 15 and 13, and um, they've both raised um, in going to church. And uh, my daughter chose to get baptized when she was 13 and my son hasn't yet um mm. and um i would say that there are that my i guess i seek to be the corrective to toxic theology and toxic culture both in christian christianity and outside it so i educate my kids about pornography um I educate them about sexism in the church. I educate them about when my son wants to not be gender non-conforming, have pigtails, wear clothing that is not stereotypically boy-like when he wants to do things that boys don't stereotypically do. I tell him if you go to any situation, whether you go into the church or into school like that, people will be mean to you and that's not okay and that's because the patriarchy lies and says that boys aren't allowed to have feelings and boys aren't allowed to do stuff and I say to my daughter you know that when you know when she first wanted to shave her armpits she got a full-on lecture as we went to buy a razor about how the patriarchy lies about how women need to be hairless when they don't um, and so for me the the, my experience of God and of Christian faith has been liberating and has enabled me to overcome so much and has enabled me to um, live the life that I live. And, you know, um, a, a, a drop in this, I don't know whether I mentioned it in the um, in the Unbelievable podcast, but God told mm. me to get married. Like, we didn't want to marry each other particularly, and we've been married 11 years. And so my experience of God has been very much this kind of very, like, super, like, God telling me, literally telling me to do stuff and me doing that and you know some people might say that's a mental health disorder but <laughs> the fruit of it is that actually God has really transformed my life and so I want for my kids to have that transformation and I think that you know if you're going to ask why 
how why should i send my daughter to church because you know it's patriarchal well like don't let your daughter out of her bedroom because like the minute she steps out of that door of her house it is that's what she's dealing with the minute she oh, gets, well, you, you, you know you know you're, you're not you're not actually you're not gonna leave that there i know you're not because what we are fundamentally saying to children when we send them to church is we're sending you to a safe environment and it sounds to me, if, if I can summarize how I heard what you said, um, you have God, you overcame church. Yeah, like I would say that church, um, that there is, there is church, there is, there is something of God to, to be found in church that for me, communion is a very profound experience that being in community with other people, wh whether I disagree with them or not is, and particularly in this stage of the world, like actually being in community with people you don't agree with is quite a radical thing to do. Um, so I think that absolutely the church is problematic, but I think everything's problematic. And so for me, it's a case of equipping my children. And I don't think the church is a safe place. I don't think we can equip our children. If we think anywhere is a safe place, if our families aren't, necessarily safe places the children are generally uh, mostly likely to be abused by someone they know so we can't say uncle so-and-so is safe we don't know who is safe we have to equip our kids with the skills to engage critically with the world both within church and everywhere um and that's part of how we parent on that, i am going I full on agreement yep. <laughs> yeah, i'm just gonna i'm gonna smash that big green agreement button right now we, we have full agreement the world is not a safe, place. Not a safe place and and i absolutely agree and i promote uh i promote letting children have as much responsibility as early as you can let them have it because i do have children before this little girl that's on the way yeah. my oldest daughter is a pharmacist my youngest daughter has a bachelor's degree in psychology i think we did okay and you know give them responsibility teach them that this world is not a safe place and church is not a safe place and getting rid of uh complementarianism and i've been wanting to say this all along getting rid of complementarianism is not going to make church a safe place no well i don't think like you know you could argue the same about anything you know the going into the public space just generally you're surrounded by sexualized images of women like that yep actually you know the patriarchy is everywhere and it's in the church and it's not only in you know i mean you look at um bill hybels who's a um well, i can't remember where he is but he's an egalitarian and he was like sexually harassing like loads right. of men. so i, I gotta say every sexual abuse case that i've ever heard of in the church that i've especially people that i've known personally they have all been what you would call complementarians they were they were actually just misogynist Pigs. Yeah, I think it's, it, 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 it adds an additional vulnerability that you don't yeah. find in non non complementarian churches. But equally, you know, there is as much there is sexism in it, it, uh, there is sexism everywhere. There is patriarchy. There is toxicity everywhere. It is not only in the church. And I think that you know the reality is that there is not better elsewhere. It's different elsewhere. So, but are you saying? Sorry, but are you yeah. saying that your children don't have? a greater implicit trust of the people in your church than they do of the people outside? Um, probably, I would say... I mean, let's be honest, seriously. I because mean, that's what we're talking about here, is a place where people go and they feel like they can let their guard down. I would that's say... Why, go ahead, I, sorry. 
yeah, I would say that I hope that we've given them the skills to to assess what is a safe and an unsafe person in every environment. So I think I would say, um, you know, that that like abusers can be teachers, abusers can be mm. family members or family friends. And mm. so I think, yeah, I think you're right. There is a capacity to see church as a safe place. We let kids run around unattended in a way that we wouldn't in a supermarket, for instance. Um, so yeah, there is there is a sense that we. Um, that but i think i would hope that i've given my kids the skills to to uh, understand how to kind of measure that someone so we don't talk about like danger we talk about safe and unsafe people and so i think yeah i'm not saying that it's impossible for them to find that they kind of let their guard down in church or we as parents do but i would hope that we i'm realistic about the fact that you know actually they're probably much safer asking for direction from a stranger than they are like (laughs) (laughs) that's completely fair and um again i don't want you to get the editorial you confused with the with the natalie i completely accept uh that you're a good parent and that you equip your children as well as you possibly can and based on our conversation uh, I, I would say that you uh, do a good job of educating them about uh, over-sexualization and about various types of uh, roles that they need to think about that they're being forced into through society that, you know, that they might not rec- uh, recognize for themselves. So I accept every bit of that while still, uh, while still standing by the fact that we treat church generally as a place that is supposed to be safe. And so when you say, well, every place is unsafe, yeah, okay, fine. But church is a place that we promote as safe. So in, in, Natalie's, in Natalie's defense, I'm going to say that schools are, uh, are, are a little bit like that, too. And I didn't teach my kids that schools were safe. Right. So we, but we, but we, send them, we send them off and they go and play in playgrounds and they have, you know, time where, you know, it's, it's, it is a, there's a presumed safety there that, is is not necessarily well, true. true. It, it is and, similar. It is similar yeah. to the presumed safety of church. And, so I, and I want to I'll and I want to echo. Uh, uh, I, I want to come alongside Natalie here and just echo because I, since I beat her up so much earlier in the program, uh, I'm your friend now, Natalie. Um, Natalie oh, has. Warning. <laughs> I'm not a good friend. There, um, there's a warning label on that. Natalie <laughs> has has stated in a very open and honest way in a way that um you know i don't want to say i didn't expect it's not like i expected you to come on and tell a bunch of lies i mean but it, you've been you've been extremely uh open and and uh vulnerable about the fact that yep. uh you do uh, in fact recognize the church is is does not uh get that presumed safety and you're teaching your kids to be safe in all situations, including the church. And I, I, I think that is commendable. I, I want other Christians to hear that and, um, and take an example from that. So thank you so much for that, uh, Natalie. Natalie, let's give you the last word before we, um, before we make some final announcements and close this down. And would you please make sure that your last words include a list of all of those projects that you're involved with? I mean, th- there's so many projects. When do you have time to eat? I just, I don't even know. I tell you. Um, so, um, what would it be? I think my, my overall um, kind of conclusion is that um i think i i absolutely accept that there is a um 
uh, it could be perceived a cognitive dissonance or, you know, an Orwellian double think between my understanding of, of, of the, the Bible and Christianity as really problematic alongside this continued commitment to it. Um, and some people might say, oh, is it like, you know, Stockholm Syndrome or something? But I would say that... Stop actually, reading my mind, Natalie. Well, you know, <laughs> that, you know, I'm sure that for those, of you, those people listening to this who are um, atheists, that they just are like, this this woman is troubled. But I think, you know, fundamentally, the only way that my... That my understanding of the world is shaped much more by my experience of god than i um and and also by the toxicity of the church you know it ha- i'm not i'm not under any illusions i have been on the receiving end of a lot of it but i still cannot escape the fact that this god that i've met and this this jesus that i know and this holy spirit who informs every aspect of my life that that is why I'm I'm I remain remain faithful to the Christian faith, not because I'm oblivious to the awfulness or unimpacted by it, or because I think that it's a very easily arguable thing. And fundamentally, the only way anybody's going to come to you know, particularly anybody who's an atheist or a skeptic, is going to come to that conclusion is if they have a similar experience, which you know is unlikely. And so I appreciate that. So I would say that fundamentally, that. I appreciate that that's why it's difficult for people to grasp it. But, you know, the, the, the other side of it, I think anybody kind of coming to coming to this conversation and, and wanting to validate people's experiences, that actually this is my experience and, and as a result of that, it can't be taken away from me. Um, so, yeah, so I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation. I think that there's so much value in, in people with differing views being together. So I'm so grateful. Yep you opening up this space and honored that you made space for me in it and um in and, terms and i assure you we've got listeners who think that we are crazy and that you <laughs> clean the floor with us i i promise <laughs> so. um, as, as a as the a relatively regular host here i can say that at least one of the hosts here is crazy <laughs> I'm sorry. no thank you thank you for being willing to take uh two hours now uh, to talk to two people that you that, that you had no real reason to spend a Saturday evening with. Yeah, well, I've I've had a lovely Saturday evening, and I just in terms of if people want to know more about my work, my um, overall website is nataliecollins.info, and um, where they can find out all my projects there. There's quite a lot of the writing and stuff that I've done, and some of the media work I've done. Um, and uh, if people are interested in the um, work around. Uh, abuse and exploitation with young people that's not it's not christian stuff that and that's the day program and stayprogram.org people are interested in the work that i do around um women working with women who've been abused or, um, or exploited that's the own my life course.org i think it's .org it might be .info i'm like i'm like now yeah so if, um, own my life course that one is and you can find all that out on my on my broader website um so yeah, so if people are interested in the stuff I've done around counting um, the amount of number of men and women on the National Christian Platform in the UK, that's Project 328. Um, and yeah, if um, people can always get in touch with me via my website if they want to know any more. So, I will thank make you. sure that there are links to all of that uh, in, oh, in the blog I, page. So. I should say, if people want to tweet me, I'm on Twitter as God Loves Women with underscores in the spaces. So I'm a bit like, I'm not, um, I don't have my, I do have a like professional account with my Natweetly um, which is more kind of my um, work, but the stuff I do around Christianity is with them, um, and I have a blog attached to that account too, where I blog mm. about my rant about Christianity. So yeah, people are welcome to find me there too. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, thank you for listening to this episode of Still Unbelievable. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at stillunbelievable.home.blog or send us an email at stillunbelievablepodcast at gmail.com and go out and have a look at nataliecollins.info. Uh, by all means, uh, get involved, send out a tweet. Uh, say hello, get involved in the conversation, correct anything you've heard, especially if David said it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, David, I'll let you close it down. Wow. Okay. So going back to uh, the still unbelievable, uh, it's uh, I write a blog post every week <laughs> there. So sometimes I get it up a little bit after the program. So when you get this in your podcast feed, give it a couple of hours, maybe the next day, go back to the website. Uh, there will be a blog post there and you can leave comments under that blog post. And so also next week, next week, Bart Campolo. We'll see you then. Have a good one.